Turns out, when you stop committing crime, law enforcement starts being pretty good people. Of course, now it took me until my mid-40s to figure that out. I'm a slow learner. For most of my life, I was a criminal. Started committing crime at age 10, on up through those mid-40s. Today, though, today I'm a law-abiding citizen. More than that, I'm a person who wants to do the right thing. Today, I'm widely considered an authority on cybercrime, online crime, and identity theft. I work with the largest companies and consumer groups on the planet to help protect against the type of person I used to be. I do pro bono work for law enforcement and universities. <laughs> you know, it's a complete change from what I used to do. And you want to know something? I really like who I am these days. I respect myself, and I know I'm on the right path. I don't believe I can make amends for my past, but I know I can make sure the choices going forward are for the benefit of others, not the detriment. I'm very fortunate and grateful for the life I have now. One thing I am blessed with is having friends who are the best minds on the planet in fraud, security, tech, and law enforcement. I went from being on the United States Most Wanted list and serving seven and a half years in prison to working with those people for the betterment of society. And I'm honored that many have agreed to be on the Anglerfish podcast this first season to discuss my story. Meet Thomas O'Malley, former federal prosecutor out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Thomas is an outstanding human being who truly cares about protecting people and helping make a better life for everyone. It was a pleasure to sit down with Thomas and hear part of his amazing story while recapping everything we've talked about so far on this season of the Anglerfish podcast. Welcome to the Anglerfish Podcast, where we visit the darkest corners of our online lives. I'm your host, Brett Johnson. The United States Secret Service called me the original Internet Godfather. Now, what does it take to get a title like that? 39 felonies, a place on the United States Most Wanted list, an escape from prison, and I built the first organized cybercrime community, Shadow Crew. Shadow Crew was a precursor to today's darknet and darknet markets, and it laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels still operate today. This first season of the Anglerfish podcast tells of my rise and fall as the world's first internet godfather. It's a fascinating story. You'll learn how cybercriminals think, how modern cybercrime came into being, and why it's so successful and hard to stop, and how I was able to turn from a life of crime to one of using the knowledge I acquired as a criminal to help protect others against the type of person I used to be. I really do appreciate you coming in and talking to me. Oh, thank you, Brett. I'm happy to deal with, uh, I guess, somebody from the other side. <laughs> well... <laughs> You know, it's good to be on the good guy side of things, finally. I, I tell a lot of law enforcement people that, you know, now that I'm on the good side, it turns out that law enforcement gets pretty friendly when you stop breaking the law. Yeah, and they get pretty unfriendly when you double deal against them. Pretty right? unfriendly. <laughs> yes, I know. Right. Yes. If you'll give the audience some of your background, we were out there talking before we started recording, and you were telling me, I mean, you, you worked against the cartels at one point. If you could give some background on that, we'd appreciate it. Sure. I started out as a state prosecutor right out of law school, and I was a prosecutor starting out 
in the misdemeanor division, and I was given a bunch of files, and I go, what am I supposed to do with these? I go, well, see if you can get a plea, and if you don't get a plea, go ahead with the trial. <laughs> so, so how many people would plea compared to going to trial? Oh, this is traffic stuff and bar fights and all kinds okay. of misdemeanors. I'd say the vast majority, as with the records for all kinds of crimes, would plead guilty. Okay. Because they know they are. <laughs> and, you know, it's better to fall on the sword than, like, risk the consequences of, at least you have some known when you plea bargain versus, like, okay, if I lose you get trial, 20 years, yeah, whatever. What's going to happen, right? And then there were people who said, I want my trial. And so, so my debriefing of witnesses actually became the direct testimony of the officer who was present. <laughs> so that's how I learned how to prepare for cases. It's okay, like, ask okay. questions about the crime. Right, right, uh, right. And so then eventually I moved to the felony division, became a felony supervisor, and then eventually deputy chief of homicides. And I left in 1985 from that work. Tried civil practice, hated that. Why so did I'm, you hate the civil practice? Because, you know, it's just like people fighting over money. And the rules of discovery are supposed to short circuit the sort of litigation costs and everything. And, and actually, I found out that it was just a way for lawyers to make money. So, so let me ask you this. You say that. So, and this is something that I've found the past couple of years. Coming from my lifestyle, I never was able to really see this before. But I went to Quantico, and I see all these people that they're choosing to be federal agents because they want to do good. So with you going into law and prosecution, was that the reason you went into that? I actually went in for the excitement. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I like the excitement without having to look over my shoulder at somebody pursuing right. me, as you might well know. <laughs> it's exciting work, and the trade-off is the pay is not going to be as good as in private practice, but right. I'd rather have a fun, exciting job, which... I thought I was going to do for several years, and it ended up between my state time, federal time, ended up being 37 years. Okay. So 37 years. 37 years. Wow, man. I sort of miss doing it, but there comes a time when you have to recognize that younger people are going to have the stamina that you no longer have because both investigations and litigation and trials are very taxing, time-consuming. They're not 30-hour weeks or 40-hour sure. weeks that people might think. They're... When you're in trial, they're 80, 90-hour weeks, and when you're prepping for trial, probably just as much time right? because you have a significant burden to prove somebody beyond a reasonable doubt to 12 people taken off the street. right? So at some point, it's time to walk away and let a younger person have the fun and the excitement. Okay. And sometimes people will say, you know, that's my dream job, but I can't afford to do it because sure. I have student debt and I have a mortgage and I have a wife and a kid. And so I was just able to adapt my lifestyle from early on to... Okay compensate for that. So now you got involved in cyber in 2009. Right. So what happened when I left and started my federal practice, I started in Southern Disco, Florida. Okay. And so, uh, <laughs> again, they just throw you into what's called the reactive division, general crimes, oh. and you're, you know, in a trial docket every two weeks and right. their crimes brought by ATF. At the time it was customs, now it's Homeland Security, okay. FBI, Secret Service, etc. You'd have a counter call every two weeks, whatever didn't plead. You either on a few cases, maybe get one continuance, and then you're in trial. With the Florida work against the drug people and all this stuff, were most of the people that you were looking at, were they basically just street rats, or were they upper-tier guys, or what? No. The federal level, the only reason to do some people at the street level is to work your way up to the head of the organization, or okay. high up the chain as possible. So a small drug case in South Florida was no less than five kilos. Then I went into the... Narcotics section in the upper part of the 
So the district ran from Key West all the way up to Fort Pierce, and I right. worked in Miami, I worked in Lauderdale, and West Palm Beach, I tried cases in Fort Pierce, I tried cases in Key West. So you were right in the middle of all that stuff then? Yeah, during the cocaine cowboy yeah. days. So yeah, so it involved cartel members, people who were responsible for bringing it up from Colombia at the time, South right. America, through the Caribbean, through the Bahamas. They used boats, they used planes, they used senior citizens on yachts posing as tourists. Uh, oh, Jesus. Oh, jeez. <laughs> they used crews on Chilean ships that were delivering gypsum, but under the gypsum was like 3,000 kilos of cocaine behind steel compartments. So how much violence was around that area at that point in time, too? Well, that actually was violence when I was in law school. I lived in an apartment in my junior and senior year, and there was that infamous shootout at the liquor store in the Daveland Mall. So. I was sort of used to that sort of environment, South right, Florida. Right. Uh, it was a very, very dangerous place if you were in the trade. Mm -hmm. Bodies showed up all the time, and it was a pretty violent time. You were working with, against the cartels and all these drug dealers down in Miami. Were you ever scared of violence following you or your family or anything like that? I was more scared on traffic 995, right? <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to go, odds are it's going to be in a car In accident. the car. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> so something caused you, you went into cybercrime in 2009. Right. Why? When I, so I came up to North Carolina in 2005 because I wanted to work someplace else before I died. And I, <laughs> <laughs> I worked in South Florida. Were you just to, tired of South Florida? I just want to change the scene, right? So every year, like when I was a federal prosecutor, there'd be openings nationwide. I go, hmm, what would it be like to live in Montana? What would it be like? To... <laughs> so eventually there was an opening in North Carolina and we loved it. And so I came up here to North Carolina, started out in 05, and I was the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force, the lead attorney for that. Gotcha. And was a deputy criminal chief. So still doing oh, drugs geez. and violent crimes. And yeah. Got out of it in 2009 because I wanted to change the pace because I still wanted to work, but I wanted okay. I wanted a challenge. And so for drug work, it's just like the facts remain the same. It's just a <laughs> change of names and the quantity and types of drugs. So, sure, sure. And there's a big learning curve to cybercrime, both in the law and attribution right. and proving those kind of cases. Well, there is on the bad guy side, too. Yeah, and when, <laughs> in, yeah, and when in 2009, chip work, computer hacking, and intellectual property you know, we were the, the nerds, sure. but by the time I exited, we were the cool guys. <laughs> <laughs> so now, when you went into cybercrime, you said there was a big learning curve. How long did it actually take you to really get what you would consider a firm grasp on what was going on there? So uh, I was doing the work for 10 years, and I was still learning when I was Still tired. learning. So it's a very complicated law. There's a lot of case law behind a lot of nuances in the sure. language of the text. So there's a lot of legal issues and element issues, and that's on top of the type of evidence challenges you have in computer type crimes that you don't typically have with a regular crime. And plus, the nature of cyber these days was a lot of criminal evidence now was no longer, if you did a search warrant, the trophy photos of the drug dealers with sure. all the cash. It was there, it's all on the telephone. Of right? course, of course. So, and if you just think of People just don't imagine that if you were to take the data from your telephone, you could fill up a warehouse with it. Right, right. Couldn't do that in the physical world. So it all became just doing the cybercrime, digital evidence, cyber evidence, all became an issue for proving all types of crimes. So let me ask you this. So you got in in 2009. Correct. So, and you retired last year? January of 2019, this year. So you retired January this year. So how did you see cybercrime change from the time you went into it 
to the time you retired? Well, it's just pretty much expanded because crime is no longer limited to the scene around you, the physical world around you. Right. You can have money stolen, your identity stolen from anybody anywhere in the world. So from that standpoint, the world of crime became larger. And it was always a challenge every time they started using more servers and right, Tor right. and everything else. It simply became more challenging, okay. but it's because of such easy money and from a law enforcement standpoint, pretty resource intensive, it naturally grew as a crime and as a big money maker of for course. criminals. Whether you're a street criminal buying identities from the internet for pennies and then converting that into stolen identities and thousands of dollars, or whether you're part of a criminal organization that does these great data breaches or whether you're part of an organization that takes that and puts it for sale on the dark net. So. Gotcha, gotcha. The people that you, that you prosecuted, I'm guessing most of them just knuckleheads, just not very sophisticated, things like that, or, or not? Uh, when they're making more money than me, I wouldn't call them knuckleheads. Well, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, they weren't that's, making money, they were stealing money, but yeah. Right, I mean, let's put it this way. You don't have to graduate from high school to make a lot of money when you're... That's true. You're, you're very... That's, that's true. It's kind of like uh, the, the Chris Rock joke where he goes, he dropped out of school in the 10th grade and started out washing dishes. <laughs> and he goes, he wished he'd dropped out of school sooner because he'd have more experience <laughs> doing the same job. So that's right. kind of like the way people early on can learn how to exploit and defraud. And it's a way to make money and sure. buy the sure. type of stuff you want as a young person. That's the path to bigger thefts and more money. And no, absolutely. it becomes a lifestyle. So you retired in 2019 and now, you're running frozen pie. So yeah, um, it's just a continued mission from a different perspective. Sure. So rather than trying to catch criminals and put them in jail, I think there's more economic value in teaching people how to prevent becoming a victim. Right. And it's certainly more economical for the government instead of spending all the resources to you know, solve the crime, prove the crime, lock somebody up and monitor them afterwards. So if people paid more attention to protecting their identity, there'd be fewer victims. And so that's what Frozen Pie does, is it gives the tools to do that. Basically. So okay. what I did was, so I became a victim of the OPM, the Office of Personnel Management data breach. Right. And that's 21.5 million federal employees, applicants, and their families. And turns out China stole it, right. primarily for espionage, but you never know what it can be used for. So once your data is out there, it's in the wild, you can't pull it back. So you got to protect yourself. And so people were asking me, how do I protect myself? And I just get tired of telling them how to do it. Because <laughs> so, you were the prosecutor. Of course, they're going to ask yeah. you, how do I protect myself? I mean, I learn a lot every time <laughs> I had to brief somebody. It's like, you know, I'd sit down and, you know, I busted my butt going to college and law school sure. and working a job and paying my taxes and my bills. And these are people who come out of, don't even get out of, graduate from high school. And I'd ask one guy, so how much money did you make off those cards? He goes, oh, in a good month, $20,000. Yeah, right? no, no taxes. And right. I go, well, that's a lot more money than me. So it just takes a little bit of street education for that. So I started researching. Monitoring was BS. It was costing people and companies a lot of money. It was just after the fact. And the more I researched the law, I sort of had the answers for myself. And I thought I'd share it with my family and friends and right. say, 
how I have time for this, go to frozenpie.com. <laughs> so, so you made a website just to refer family and friends to. Correct. So I learned how to, I just bought some hosting services and watched YouTube videos on how to create and design a website. So it was a lot easier for me to say, go to frozenpie.com with two eyes. I love and, it. Because people got, are you in the pizza business when you're there? I go, no. I go, there were some prosecutors who did start the California restaurant chain. Right, right, right. But no, so this was preventative. And by the time I retired, they had made credit freezes free. And so I go, now everybody in every state can protect themselves sure. with credit freezes. So I've just continued to try to make the platform easier for people to understand and the gateway to go to where you need to go without any of the marketing stuff to try to distract you from getting a freeze, go right to the credit freeze pages with the credit reporting agencies and go right to the government agencies like the FTC and CFPB and some nonprofits. So if you want to protect your identity, just go to frozenpie.com because it gives you the certified links to where you so, need to so go. So you don't have to pay LifeLock anything? No. If you're, <laughs> if you're paying LifeLock, you're wasting your money. I did notice when I said LifeLock, you got this look of disgust on your face all of a sudden. Well, you know, one of the co-founders was, in fact, a criminal. He was. Todd Davis. Is that who we're talking about <laughs> here? No, not Todd one? Davis. Malcolm, I forget his last name. So okay. when his criminal history came up, he kind of like fell off the map. Ah. Todd Davis simply didn't let people know that when he put his name, his face, his social security number, he didn't let people know that, well, in fact, 12 people had stolen his identity. So you know, it's he funny got dinged you said by that. the FTC. Uh, I've worked with enough security companies. One of the security companies I worked with had some analysts that used to work at LifeLock when Todd Davis was in Denver with his social security number on the van and everything driving down. And they told me that at that point, while Todd Davis was sitting up there saying, hey, use my social, I dare you. There were four fraud analysts handling just the fraud he was being hit with at that point. <laughs> well, there were, in fact, plus or minus a dozen instances of where his identity <laughs> was used to commit fraud. And so because of that, the FTC fined them $12 million. And this was just before they did their IPO. Sure, of course. So they bought a legitimate company, ID Analytics, which was a spinoff <laughs> of the people who didn't go with Fair Isaacs right. or the FICO people. And so they did have a legitimate product, but it's the Peter Principle, right? So after he got fined for $12 million, he stepped down as the president and became just the CEO. So of he course. was always the chairman, CEO, president. So now he was the CEO. And then a few years later, they we're back at it again and making claims that weren't backed up. Of course. And pursuant to the settlement agreement with the FTC, they fined him a million dollars and he got, <laughs> he was no longer the CEO, but he was still the chairman. And so he just keeps <laughs> dropping titles. Yeah, it's like, it's like, one of those, do you have a job where you can like screw up royalty and get promoted and more Not money? really. <laughs> well. So, you know what, what I was told, and I wish I could take credit for it, but I was told by another security guy that LifeLock, they're, they're a great marketing company, but they're not a very good protection company. So look, they're just telling you after the fact that your identity's <laughs> been stolen and right. used, okay? And, and their business model's morphed over time, but yes, most of their money is spent in marketing. And I forget which year it was, but they're spending $100 million in marketing. And what they're marketing is fear. Sure. And so they're scaring people and they're scaring mostly elderly people. And it's kind of like a bait and switch. You can get $9.99, 10% discount, but when you read the fine print, it's just like it's one credit bureau. And like if you want to get all three credit bureaus, and this is just monitoring, right? This freezing is not built into it. Right. And it's up to $35 a month, <laughs> and there's a family plan. 
And once again, it's the Peter principle. After being fined a total of like $112 million, and then like there's another $12 million that went to some lawyers in a class action suit, right. they sold themselves to Symantec for $2.3 billion. <laughs> so Symantec paid $2.3 billion for a company whose business model was to scare people sure. and sell them, get them hooked on the basic, constantly upsell them, try to upsell them to 35. And at the time they sold, they were scaring at least 4 million people. Well, that was their customer base, 4, 4 million, million people. And so that's their business plan. And their business plan is not to solve the problem of identity theft. The business plan is to make you think that you're safe of course. by paying them $35 a month and being notified. So they've got a lot more bells and whistles and they have a lot of disclaimers. And you know, the biggest disclaimer that you don't see in the big print is like, we can't monitor everything. Basically, right, you know, right. this is not. A, so, if you read the fine print, and if you read the fine print, there are million dollars insurance. When you read the fine print of everything, you're paying a lot of money for nothing. Sure. sure. And if you have to read a lot of things, you're getting screwed. Right. <laughs> the more you have to read, the more trouble you're in. That's true. <laughs> because those are designed by those are written by lawyers, and it's to save the company, and it's you're not right. to protect you. You're it's right. like, like privacy policies, right? A genuine privacy policy would say. We don't share your information with anybody. It's that simple. But when somebody has a privacy policy that's 10 pages long, it's basically a data sharing policy. You're absolutely right. Right? You read it. We're not and, going to share except, except, except. Right. And when it <laughs> pops up, something pops up in your phone screen, you say, we changed our terms of service. Here, if you want to read it, it's like a thousand you know, on a telephone, right. it's like a hundred pages. <laughs> like, you're not going to read it. Hell, I just want to get this. And, absolutely. It's a game. So hopefully, in an ideal world, frozen pie puts LifeLock out of business. Well, that's going to be hard to do. But if everybody were to freeze their credit, there would be no need for the LifeLock. You're, life right. You're absolutely right. And I, that's one of the things I mean, I've you know, from from hacking people's identity and social engineering. Right. Right. I guess you've seen some of my presentations, read some of the blogs, and everything. I don't think I've ever mentioned this. My first, my first identity theft was. I think I was 21. I was in Hazard, Kentucky. That's where I'm from is Hazard. And I was already a criminal. People are already aware of my criminal background. But this guy I went to high school with, his name was Greg Talby. I uh, wanted a video game system and I wanted to go shopping. We didn't have cell phones back then, you know, so got on a pay phone, called up and acted like I was the Social Security Administration. Got his social security number, got his date of birth. From there, I went down to the Board of Education, walked in, and they would just give you the, as long as you had the date of birth and social, they'd give you the education records. So got the education records, his transcripts from high school. From there, I went to the Social Security office, got them to print out a piece of paper saying that I did have that social security number, then went into the DMV or the county court clerk's office and got a copy of the driver's license. So before that, you just stole other people's stuff. Just stole other people's stuff. All right. Yeah, so, so, and then uh, when you stole somebody's identity, oh, you could steal a lot brand more new game. stuff. Brand new game. So easier, it, right? Yeah. So I went, uh, my first stop after I got the driver's license, they used to rent these video game systems. So I went and got a video game system on a rental under that driver's license. Then uh, I was like, man, why stop there? So I took the driver's license over to a citizen's bank, opened up a bank account, deposited $100 in the bank account. Got the checkbooks sent to me and then started writing cold checks all over the place to the tune. It was like $4,000, something like that. I was not a sophisticated criminal at that point, so it was very easy to track who Brett Johnson was. They just went to the DMV and there's my picture 
on his driver's license. Well, but when you got caught, you learned how to be a better criminal, right? Right. So I got called. They, they got the warrant. I got called, and I had my family was fairly well connected. My mom was a criminal, and she, she knew all the other lawyers. So I got off on probation is what I got off. I had to pay all the money back. And I didn't commit identity theft again. I was probably 23 at that point, 22, 23. My next identity theft was probably 27, 28. What happened was is I got married, married this woman. I shouldn't have married her, should not have. But I was, I was so in love with love, <laughs> got married, moved from Hazard, Kentucky to Lexington, Kentucky. And I'm going to UK and I'm this idiot, you know, oh, you don't have to work. Oh, I'll do the cooking and cleaning, all that bullshit. Had a full-time job and everything, and I couldn't take it and didn't want to take it. So uh, it was easier for me to start back in crime. That's what I started doing, man. The first thing I did, I got a job. I was initially working at Lexmark, quit that, and got a job doing telemarketing. The first telemarketing for me was Lexington Diners Club. It was this uh, food card. You'd buy one entree at select restaurants, and they'd give you another entree for free. Those things sold for $30 a piece. So I'm sitting there selling these on a daily basis. I'm making, you know, $8 an hour. And I'm like, that's just not enough money. So what I did was is the office closes one night. I go back at 2 o'clock in the morning, break into the office, steal 200 of these cards, and then start calling people on my own, selling these cards. And, of course, not sophisticated at all. Brett Johnson gets another warrant for him at that point. And, again, it was one of these things. I got off on probation. I had to pay some money back, got off on probation. Still kept on with telemarketing. The next thing I did, I worked for the Shriners Circus, selling the circus tickets. And as that ended, I was making really good money doing that. As that ended, they transitioned over to working for the Kiwanis Club, selling food baskets for, for the food banks. And of course, Brett Johnson, I'm sitting there going, okay, they're selling those food baskets for $40 a piece. I can do that. So I set up my own Kiwanis Club business and start telemarketing my own food baskets that were non-existent. I was in Lexington, Kentucky. I was going on a run to pick up money, and I went to Versailles, Kentucky. And one of the people who had pledged money just happened to be a Versailles law enforcement officer. <laughs> so I, I go up to his porch, knock on the door. I'm like, I'm with the Kiwanis Club. And he's like, you are? And I'm like, yes. And he's like, well, I'm with the Versailles Police Department. And I'm like, you are? <laughs> and he was like, yes. So I'm like, I'm going to leave now. So I get in the car, start driving off, and of course I get arrested. And I served three months at that point in time. It's the first real jail time I'd, I'd done. So let's talk about that a little bit. Early on, had you done some time versus probation, do you think that would have affected your future activity? Or how much time does it take to be in jail to say, I, don't, I want uh, to get a real job? I don't think it takes time. My opinion now is that there has to be some sort of major change. Something major has to happen in your life for you to change. Now, for me, that was not going to jail for three months. It wasn't. So, you know, when I was doing the drug work and violent crime work, if you're a recidivist and you have a certain number of violent crimes or a certain number of prior felony drug convictions, sure. you're facing a lot of time in federal court. Right. So you can come from a state court system and have done probation. And then when you come over to the federal side, and they tell you that you're looking at a mandatory minimum of 10 years ago. <laughs> but But all I got was probation That's before ago. Getter, yeah. You've graduated. <laughs> and then going to your point about people having to make the decision to actually reform themselves, I had a crack cocaine distribution case, you know, multi-kilo crack distribution. Sure. And one of the people who got caught up again had 
a prior conviction, had done 10 years in federal prison. Had already right? done 10. And so he gets caught up again, and this conspiracy involved everything from the original powder, you know, cocaine hydrochloride kilos, right. into cooking it in the crack. And so he was dealing in the what they call powder cocaine in the street, knowing that it was going to be used to make crack cocaine. Gotcha. Well, that's still part of a crack cocaine. Absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, now he's looking at even more time. And I remember debriefing him, and I go, man, you did 10 years in jail. How'd you get back into this? And he goes, he goes well, I thought I was just doing a, dealing in powder. And, you know, I learned my lesson in crack. And plus, I was young. I was 18 oh. at the time. I go, but you're 28 now, so you, you So know? He, he pulled that bullshit. Well, I learned my lesson in cocaine, but not in crack yet. Well, he yeah, he learned his lesson in crack cocaine, but the fact that he did 10 years in jail was not enough to deter sure. him from committing. It would change his criminal behavior as the type of drugs and the quantities he dealt in, right. but not that kind but of activity. But not the criminal mindset. And he blamed it on being immature. I go, well, that was when you're 18 or 28 now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When do you when's grow it, up? When's it going to sink in? <laughs> but, you know, I've had a few people who reformed themselves. And one individual I remember was a school bus driver who was a heroin dealer, but she was a heroin dealer because she was a heroin addict. And she okay. didn't want to dime at her source. And her source owned a lot of low-income housing, well, rental stuff, sure. and laundered all her monies in the Fort Lauderdale area through the rental properties. And when I tried to first get her to plead guilty and cooperate, she right. refused. She went to jail. She did three years. She came out. And at this point, I just threw in a grand jury. And then there were no deals. Sure. And then we called her to trial, and she testified to the truth. She, I was, she, there's no bargain. And it was like the first time in my life, so this is like in the 90s, this is after having practiced for 10 plus years of criminal. After her testimony, and we had a break, right. she walked up to the FBI agent who'd been working at this drug case, and she goes, I wanna thank you. And he no goes, what? She goes, I wanna thank you for saving my life. Because she was a heroin addict. And so she was no longer afraid of the person who had turned her into an addict and a drug dealer. And she'd gone from driving school buses on heroin to working in the hotel business right. and had a steady job. So it has to be a transformation, like I'm not going to do this anymore. How many, how many people did you actually see that, that turned it around? 37 years. That, well, so I don't come <laughs> in contact with a lot of them. I've right. had, I bumped into some of them. One, I remember, some, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. I go, well, that's not what the jury said. <laughs> I said, you know, he, he should have been in jail, then he wasn't yet sentenced. But so I don't have much contact with him, but it's hard to estimate. I would say it's certainly under 25%. And it depends on the nature of the crime. So if people are drug addicts, meth addicts are the worst, right? They, right, right. They could go, I don't know that they necessarily go clean in the institution because a lot of drugs are smuggled in. But when they come out, they go right back into it. So they have the highest recidivist rate, and this is based on supervised release violations. Like, it's kind of like parole. Right. You're on a supervised release for a certain period of time, and for those kind of cases, you get drug tested, et cetera. But the people who've actually come up and thanked the agents or something, about 5% maybe. So let me ask, so you weren't able to see a lot of people turn their lives around, but one thing you would have been able to see, how many people really... I mean, really showed remorse about the crimes they had committed. Because I know, well, I, I, I say that because I know when I was there, I didn't. I feigned remorse. Well, you and every other defendant who shows up in front of a judge, <laughs> well, right? Yeah. So I see that all the time at sentencing. 
but then they'll show up and go, I won't screw up again, Judge. Right. You know, so. Did you ever see? I mean, did you ever see any just real just people who who really? Yeah, it's you know few and far between because I'm not a defense lawyer and I right, haven't seen right. it. But there have been people. But then there have been people who I thought were really really sincere, and I was prosecuting them again a couple of years sure. later. Okay. So there are certain types of crimes where there's high recidivism. Drug cases where the drug dealers use the product. Right. Particularly the meth people and the you know the addictive kind of drugs, white collar crime that involve frauds and Ponzi schemes because the first time around they won't do much time and, sure. and it takes a lot of time and all they do is go to jail and try to learn how not to get caught the of next course. time. So it depends on the nature of the crime and okay. and I think in their assessments like, will I get caught again? You know I'd get caught in one aspect of something. I'd stop that and just migrate over to something else. So it, it became this, this thing where I, I had this steady progression toward going online. I started working at the J. Peterman Company. Before that, I had found eBay. At that point in time, eBay was pretty much wide open. You could get people's phone numbers, email addresses, full name, and everything else. And what I was doing, I would post an ad saying I was looking for video game collections or coin collections, comic book collections, or something like that, and I was buying that stuff. So I would convince someone to send that collection to me. And of course I was supposed to pay for it and never did. And I, that's how I made money for a while. Started working at Jay Peterman Company from uh, Seinfeld fame. And he had access to all of the Titanic movie props. They were all sold out across the board, but we would see working at customer service, we would see the shipments that were coming in and we could cancel orders and buy them ourselves if, if we wanted to. So I started doing that and I'd place things on eBay for sale. And what happened was I lost, of course, I lost my job at J. Peterman for doing that shit. And that was my entry into eBay. But um, you're getting paid less from J. Peterman than you were in committing much less, the crime. Much right. less. Oh, that's... Yeah. And I was that insider guy. I mean, I had access to the, to the information that was coming in and everything, and I used that access to commit fraud. What happens is, is once that job ends, I decide not to even look for another job. I just go straight into fraud. I mean, that was what I did anyway, so why not just adopt that? First real crime, other than those other crimes, the first, what I consider my first real online crime was I was watching TV and there were Beanie Babies being talked on Inside Edition by Bill O'Reilly. And he was profiling this peanut, the royal blue elephant, selling for $1,500. And hell, I'm an idiot. So I'm like, man, I need to find a peanut tomorrow. <laughs> so I skip class and I go around to all the Hallmark stores looking for the little guy and he can't find him, of course. I didn't have enough sense to realize you're not going to find that damn thing in a store. So they had these little gray elephants, buy a gray elephant for $8, stop by Kroger on the way home, pick up a pack of blue dye. And that's exactly what I did. I went home and dyed the guy. At least I tried to dye him. Found out pretty quick he's made out of polyester. He looks like he's got the mange when you get him out of the tub, you know. But what I did was is I found a picture of a real one online, posted it on eBay. Woman thought I had the real thing. She won the bid, $1,500. I sent her a message. My exact message was, We've never dealt before. Don't know if I can trust you. If you want this elephant, I need you to send me a U.S. Postal money order. When it clears, I'll send the elephant to you. So, again, the kind of work I'm doing, I, I believe there's like criminals and there are corporate criminals, right? <laughs> and, just criminal. <laughs> and the only one is culpable or more culpable than you is the company that convinced people that that stuff toys worth $1,500. Yeah, no shit, right? What's it, <laughs> what's it worth today? What? Five cents? Yeah, I not mean, much. Even the collectibles like Yadros and stuff, <laughs> your kids don't want them. There's no market no, they don't for that want anymore. That. They I don't went want to that at all. 
a probate session left on, put on by this lawyer. So he talks about how to protect your family and your assets through trusts and sure. everything else. And, and he goes, so let me talk to you about the final category, your stuff. <laughs> your stuff. <laughs> your kids don't want your stuff. They want you to give your stuff to your other kids so they have to deal there with it. There you go. So, <laughs> yeah, so it's like I say, there's every time there's people are being exploited, there's a criminal who's going to exploit them more. You're you right. took her money, but she's really not out anything because had it been a real stuffed toy, it'd be worth 25 well, cents Well, except today. I, I was the guy who <laughs> stole the money, you know? So that led to an entire little industry that I set up of selling non-existent items on eBay. And which well, still goes on today. It still goes on today. So what happens is, as I get into that, move over into pirated software, I got a contact out of Hong Kong that was selling pirated games. He was also selling pirated Windows, Adobe products as well. Started selling those, that turned into installing mod chips into cable boxes and video game systems so you could play the software or watch all the channels. Finally in 90, this would have been 96, 97, I was already turning on the channels with the satellite DSS systems. Canadian judge ruled that it was legal for Canadian citizens to pirate satellite DSS signals. He said that since RCA is not selling the systems up there, my citizens can pirate it, it's fine. So what happened in the United States, you go down to Best Buy, buy the system for $100, take it out in the parking lot, pull the card out, throw the system away, program the card, ship it up to Canada, $500 a pop. I started doing that, making a lot of money. Had so many orders, I could not fill them all. So of course, the fraudster in me, I'm like, why do I need to fill any of the orders? They're in Canada, I'm down here, who are they gonna complain to? So I didn't fill any of the orders, stole even more money, and I got scared, man. I got scared. I was doing all this stuff under my name, all of it under my name. So I was well, because like, you thought that the police had more important things oh, to yeah, do. Oh, yeah. They have limited resources. I mean, that was, and I was getting visits from law enforcement. Right. I, like at one point, I had signed autographed baseballs for Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire. I'd forged autographs, and I got a visit from law enforcement on that. So here's probably a trick you learned. If you want to do that kind of crime, go to New York because they don't have time to mess there with you. There you go. Go someplace where they don't but have you, time for and, bullshit. And, but if you're worried about getting caught, don't go to Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> well, this was in Lexington, Kentucky, but yeah. <laughs> So I was, I figured I needed a fake ID. I could set up a bank account using the fake ID, that old trick I learned with that first identity theft thing I, I, I committed. So I get a fake ID, open up a bank account, and launder the money through that, and I'd be fine. I was at UK, had no idea where to get a fake driver's license. So I get online, look around for a week or two, finally think I find a guy. He's got a forum set up, got all this other stuff that's talking about all the IDs that he's making. Send him $200, send him my picture, Son of a bitch rips me off. Man, I get pissed. I get pissed. I wasn't used to being ripped off myself. I was used to being the thief. I still need the ID. And the only avenue you had at that point was an IRC chat session. You know, this rolling message board was all you had. So I start looking around for some platform, some forum, some place I could get this information. Don't find anything. The only thing I find is this site called Counterfeit Library. And it was ran out of the UK, and the only thing they dealt with was counterfeit degrees. UK, Britain, or Britain. Ukraine? No, U out of Ukraine. Britain. Yeah, it was ran out of the United Kingdom, and they sold counterfeit degrees, counterfeit university degrees, certificates, things like that. They still sell them today. They still sell them today. Back then, it was $2,500 a pop was what it was. And they had this forum on there that no one used. I mean, no one was there. So I go, and I use that forum to start bitching about being ripped off. Every single day I complain about this guy, fake ID man, has ripped me off of $200. And blah, 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 blah. 
About the same time, two other guys show up. One of them's name is Mr. X. He was from Los Angeles. The other one was Beelzebub from Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. And we become buddies. So about three weeks into this, Beelzebub gets me on ICQ, which was a messaging service, sends me a message. And I went by the screen name of Gollum, Gollum Fun at that time. He was like, Gollum, I can make you a driver's license. And I'm like, well, make me one. He was like, no, no, no. He said, I'm going to charge you $200 for it. And I'm like, like hell you are. And he's like, dude, he's like, if you're going to do this stuff online, you're going to have to learn to trust people after a while. He said, so I'm going to make your ID, but I want to charge you $200 for it. So by this time, I'm friends with the people who are running the counterfeit library. And I'm like, you know what? I'll send you $200. That way, when you rip me off, I can get your ass banned from this forum. I don't put up with you anymore. So I sent him $200, sent him a picture. Two weeks later, I get a driver's license. The name is Steven Schwecky, real guy, Ohio driver's license. At that point in time, he worked for ADP payroll. He works for ADP payroll to this day. To me, it was the prettiest damn thing I'd ever seen. Of course, I do everything I want to do. Open up the bank account, start going to check cashing places, running checks through that. And that was the start of it right there. Beelzebub, what he wanted to do is he wanted to sell IDs. Mr. X made a passable social security card that he would sell. And me, I didn't have any, I didn't have any knowledge on anything. So what Beelzebub proposed was that I could be the reviewer of all the products. So not only their products, but any new service that came in, I'd review that as well. And that was the start of it right there, man. We started doing that. It was kind of like this criminal field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. And, you know, all the parts are interchangeable. So one of the yeah. cases I prosecuted was somebody from Shadow Crew, very low-level player at the time. Sure. He said, I can get you a perfect-looking medical Absolutely. insurance card. And he would show people this, and he'd ask their opinion, how good is this? And he'd, you know, get a thumbs-up or a thumbs-down and refine that counterfeiting process. Right. When they took Shadow Crew, various members of Shadow Crew down, <laughs> um, he was one of them, but they didn't find anything more than a few credit cards, so he got probation, didn't get right. much time. Right. And um, So he got probation on a federal case? Yeah, but because well, because they went in there and he didn't have much stuff. So so typically okay. in frauds, your time is based on the amount of loss attributable to you. Gotcha. Your relevant conduct and activity. So he either got very little time or straight probation. But, you know, Shadow Crew got taken down, and rather than turning his life around, sure. he just, he had developed a skill set, and so... He goes um, right back I, to it. Yeah, and, and just a different flavor. So I worked this case with the Postal Inspection Service, and you have to work everything from the ground up, right? right. So when I told you, if you want to get away with these kind of crimes, do it in New York, don't do it in <laughs> Podunk, Iowa, right? Because so these people were buying his product off the internet, they go to a small town, Shelby, North Carolina, and a woman goes up and she's got all these counterfeit credit cards and she's trying to buy gift cards. Okay. And she's running it through going decline, decline, sure. decline, decline. And then she ended up you know, getting some and she was buying gift cards. Right. So now if that happened in Charlotte, nobody would call the police. But sure. in Shelby, North Carolina, somebody called call. the police. <laughs> of course, because nothing's going on in Shelby. <laughs> so, so, you know, they... Stop the vehicle, and there's two people in there. One of them worked in the school system, the maintenance department, mm. was loaded up with credit cards, fake IDs, et cetera. All that. So, you know, that was just a state case. Sure. But we decided, well, let's go ahead. And they luckily, they were in the Charlotte area, so we had PC, and we got search warrants, and were able to seize their computers and some device-making equipment, et cetera. Right. 
and the male who was in the car, he offered to cooperate and put <laughs> put the agent online, the forum where he was buying this stuff. Okay. And it was called fake plastic. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so we started an investigation and you had to be vetted onto the site. So sure. if you're buying stolen credit card numbers, to be able to buy this, you had to be vouched for, it's kind of like a country club membership, right? right? right. So the Russian who was selling him the stuff online went ahead and vouched for him to get onto that forum. And so okay. he ended up vouching for, he went online and showed <laughs> the agent, the postal inspector, like this Pandora's box of like every credit card you want, because what the guy had done was he counterfeited credit cards. Right. So he used Adobe, white plastic, exact copies. If you want to steal in the name of your alma mater, you could do that. You know, get the holograms your, you know, out of Hong Kong. Yeah. All that. So yeah, there's so they sold the overlays for like 25 cents a piece right. if you wanted it. So they had two services. One is they just give you the plastic. So like if you buy stuff at Walmart, right, you just swipe the card and they don't really care. But if you go into like a high end retail store, sure. like a Bloomingdale's or something, right, they're going to ask to see the card. Right. If the card is white plastic or a That's very a crummy knockoff. <laughs> you know, doesn't numbers and the card don't match what's coming, you know, last four digits coming across the computer, they're not, you're not going to be able to buy those Gucci shoes for right. $500, right? <laughs> so they would sell them blank. And so these criminal outfits who are buying the fake plastic would either emboss it themselves or they had an embosser and gold tipper. And so for an extra few dollars, you could get a batch of them with sure. uh, gold tipped raised numbers. And so we looked at this and so we started an investigative operation. We, we were seeing nickname Operation Plastic Surgery. <laughs> <laughs> you guys always did have the best investigation names. I got to say that. <laughs> so, so we did this thing, and then we found out New York was looking at it. But, you know, we ended up getting a quicker lead than, I think it was New Jersey I worked with on this. Okay. And so we had to, like, broker a deal, like, who's going to get what <laughs> as far as taking down the people and the assets. So you're fighting over the red meat. <laughs> yeah. And so like you have to reach this mutual understanding with another district because, you know, you don't want to be wasting your time sure. making a case for somebody else. So I was able to say, well, you know, we got the guy who's at least sending him out. And so so the guy who ran the operate the Shadow Crew guy was just sitting behind the computer running the whole operation. Do you remember what his screen name was? Gray Wolf, anything like that? I don't remember his that's name. The, Even that's though I the did, Charlotte I don't want to. Yeah. Huh? That's the Charlotte guy I knew. Yeah, I don't so. think so. He's he's yeah. in jail now. But right. uh, so he's sitting safe behind the computer. Everything worked out. Right? <laughs> he had a pretty good job, pretty good gig. But he hires a guy, and and what they did was when they mailed this out, so that you, the criminal, could track it, they would use the UPS system, but they wouldn't do the online postage because you can track that down they want to be able to show you that it's shipped and when it's delivered. And so they use that mail delivery service. But but rather than putting the online postage on, they put on a, believe it or not, it's like, I think, a $20 stamp. <laughs> so what's the problem with that? Well, I don't know. You tell me. Okay, I mean, it's, so it's, I'm glad you're a criminal. The problem with that is how many people buy a $20 stamp? Of course. So of all we course. had to so do is do a search like... Point. So we knew they were being mailed out of Florida somewhere. Right. And we go check with the postal offices, who's buying $20 stamps? And so the knucklehead, now that's an, that he hired, was buying $20 stamps. And so we had surveillance cameras and everything else. And so we set up a surveillance <laughs> and, you know, we, we put a tracker on oh. his car. And the tracker led us to the shadow crew guy who thought he was safe. 
<laughs> so this time he was like making a lot of money and turning it into Bitcoin. So he had his own Bitcoin wallet. And so this is Bitcoin time <clears throat> here now. Yeah, this is Bitcoin because okay. this was a few years ago. Okay. And they used some other currency, but they had to stop taking it because we took down, or DOJ took down some operations in Central America. Gotcha. And so we're no longer taking this form payment. It's only Bitcoin or something. So Liberty Reserve, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, Liberty Reserve got right. taken down. Right. So you used to be able to pay by Liberty Reserve <laughs> or Bitcoin, but when Liberty Reserve got shut down, it's only Bitcoin. So we knew where all the players were, and we ended up taking it down and doing search warrants, and you know the motherhood was there. Sure. How much time did he get? So the bit player, he cooperated, and so he did some time. It was less than five years. Okay. But, you know, the first thing he did was when they opened up, so they followed him on the day we were going to do the takedown, the search warrants, to the warehouse where we knew that the operation right. was. And so as soon as they lift up the warehouse door, and it was United States Postal Inspection Service and <laughs> the FBI and the Secret Service, and he came out from behind the wall with his hands up and he goes, I'm gonna cooperate. Yeah, you are. Yeah, right. so, <laughs> yeah and, and you are. He, and he did. And okay. uh, quite frankly, we didn't need his cooperation because sure. we had the other guy pretty well nailed with the, all the evidence. So hopefully we'd a good did. ten out of that anyway. So the other guy, the Shadow Crew guy, since he'd been a prior defendant on the Shadow Crew case ah. in New Jersey, we went ahead and gave it to them, and they were set up with the FBI to do an undercover operation, and so we continued to keep the website up, we took control of it. Okay. We ran an undercover investigation. Obviously we couldn't mail out fake plastic stuff, right. but we could mail out white cards and so people would place <laughs> their orders and we would put him in the computer and when the bad guys got the white cards he goes, What the hell is this? And they'd be screaming and everything and and he goes, man, he goes, my guy just, he goes, no, you're working for the feds. We know it. <laughs> we know it. You never, you've never done this before. So, <laughs> so, yeah, so he got a lot more time because, you know, we were able to come up with some valuation for what he's doing. But he, then he got cooperation. We took everything his ha- he sure, had. Sure, So, yeah, so your point is, is correct that you learn some things that when that particular scam doesn't work out, you then adjust. That's it. You adjust it and add more pieces and find another way to make money. And and criminals are kind of like water. They seek the path of least resistance. You're absolutely right? right. With us, that's how Counterfeit Library started was there. It really was kind of this, if you build it, they will come type thing. I mean, people started to flock there because you could not trust anything that was going on with IRC. So with me, I was the reviewer. At one point, I knew every single transaction that took place on that website. And anybody that came in with a product or a service, of course, it had to go through me as well. And that model's still in place today, right, right, with these forums, because you're going to make more money as a criminal selling stuff Absolutely. Week after week after week than trying to rip people off piecemeal because you're going to blacklist them and nobody will do business. And so the short haul will be gone quickly where if you get the trust of what you're selling, people can keep on. Yeah, so we we, we were the guys. We instituted that vouching system you mentioned earlier. We had the review system up. And that, that really, it redefined the way things were going at that point. All of a sudden, people were able to network with each other. We had an open source environment. So what year was that? This would have been 97, 98 that this happens. Counterfeit Library, it was more of a kind of a teaching environment. You know, we weren't engaged at that point in time. We weren't doing credit theft. We were doing identity theft, eBay fraud, PayPal fraud, that type of stuff. And we were training people. If someone came in and didn't know how to do a specific type of fraud, we would teach them how to do that. 
And that was, that was basically the status quo until one day this guy named Script shows up on Counterfeit Library. His, his real name's Dmitry Golubov, but he shows up and what he says, he makes a post that says, hey, I've got credit card information. What you can do is give me an address, give me a phone number, wait five business days, order whatever you want to order. And that one post changed the entire dynamic of Counterfeit Library. It leads to Shadow Crew, does everything else. It turns out that Dimitri had, he had seen the success that we were having with Counterfeit Library. And he had this idea. He was spamming credit card numbers. He had an idea that, hey, maybe people will buy credit card numbers. So he, he's in Odessa in the Ukraine. He calls up all of his buddies and no shit. They had a get-together. 150 people met and talked about how to set up a website and engage in cybercrime. And that website became Carter Planet. Carter Planet, the problem was, and I, I talk about that a lot today, so for cybercrime to be successful, you have to gather data, commit a crime, and cash out. The Ukrainians were great about gathering data. They could even commit the crime. The problem, they could not cash out. All that shit was shut down because of the amount of fraud that was over there. Even if you were a legitimate card holder, you couldn't run your own card through that, that block of Europe at that point. So Dimitri comes to us with this advertisement, and people jump on him. They think he's a fed. They think he's law enforcement. No one can do that. So I was the reviewer. At that, at that point, I was still the only reviewer at that point. Everyone was screaming for me to review the guy. I was scared to death. Finally, I'm like, okay, got to do it. Get him on ICQ, and he tells me the same thing. Give me an address, give me a phone number, wait five business days, order whatever you want to order. I'm like, okay. So I was in Charleston, South Carolina. Gave him an address, gave him a burner phone number. Waited five days and tried to hit Dell.com for five grand, and the order failed. So I get back on ICQ. Hey, man, it didn't work. He was like, give me one more chance. And I'm like, look, I'll give you one more chance. But if it doesn't work this time, just forget about us altogether. And he's like, one more chance. I'm like, okay. Give him another address, another phone number, wait five business days, hit Thompson's Computer Warehouse for $4,000, hit Dell for $5,000 on one card. Order goes through, I get the products. I post the review, and it wasn't overnight, but it was within the space of a week, maybe less, that that entire website, Counterfeit Library, changed from the identity theft, eBay, PayPal fraud to credit is what happened. So it was a problem with the first one. There was a cap to the transactions. I never found out what the problem was. Either the card was dead, so it may have killed the card when you updated the address and the phone number, or there was a cap. The spending limit just wasn't there for that 4K. But it was certainly there for the next one. And what happens is, is once I post that, and I was the guy, because by that point in time, Beelzebub had dropped out, Mr. X had been arrested, so I was the only guy left of the three that started this. So when I posted the review, everyone took me at my word, because I gave go-aheads for everything at that point. And everyone starts to do that. So Dimitri brings in his other players, Roman Vega, went by the screen name Boa. Boa dealt in physical counterfeit credit cards at that point. So we start selling those. I was the principal seller for Bo at that point. He brings in a guy named Big Buyer who did more of this ATO. Back then we called it COB for change of billing, but it's ATO stuff, account takeover. But started doing that and started stealing a lot of money. So how did you profit from becoming sort of the consumer reports of criminals? Profit for me. Initially, there wasn't a profit. Initially for me, I would rip off people on eBay with the non-existent items, stuff like that. Now, the way I profited once we turned to credit, 
by me giving a vouch to one of the credit sellers, I had free access to any product that they had. So the only thing I would need to say is, hey, send me 10 credit card numbers or 10 COBs, and they would send it at that point. So I, I got top billing on everything. Anything that I wanted, they would do. And they, they gave me kickbacks and things like that as well. So I did that. What happens is with Shadow Crew, with Counterfeit Library, we had a set of sub-forums. So we had credit, we had driver's licenses, we had cash-out services. We had a sub-forum because of Counterfeit Library dealing with counterfeit degrees. We had a sub-forum for counterfeit degrees and degree mills. This one guy named John Engel, legitimate guy, distance learning fella, he finds out, and he had a following from hell, he finds out that we're selling counterfeit degrees. Now, he runs a legitimate degree learning center. He finds out we're running counterfeit degrees. He posts that on his website, and all of his followers start bombarding counterfeit library all of a sudden. At the same time, a guy named Seth Sanders, Kid, actually that was his screen name too, was Kid, the only thing he was ever interested in was making fake driver's licenses. That was it. He had no interest in credit cards whatsoever. So he comes to me, he's like, Gollum, I want to make another website just dealing with driver's licenses. And I'm like, dude, do you. More power to you, I wish you the best. So he goes off and he builds Shadow Crew. The problem was is he only had about 60 members of the forum. No one was coming over there because everyone was doing credit theft. So we start getting bombarded by John Engel, kids sitting over there with this brand new platform called Shadow Crew, no traffic. So that lasts for about three months. Kid and me were talking one night and he's like, hey man, why don't you come over to Shadow Crew? And I'm like, dude, what? And he's like, do what you want to, come over to Shadow Crew. And I was like, okay, I'll come over there. You make me super admin over there. Let me put in who I want to in charge with the other forums. Give me leverage to make whatever sub-forums I want to. We'll do that. Within 48 hours, Counterfeit Libraries Forum is shut down. We're over at Shadow Crew conducting business at that point. Some of the people that I was connected with, so we had Albert Gonzalez. You mentioned him earlier on right. the tape. But Albert... We were so busy with our own frauds, everything that was going on, we couldn't handle the tech side of the forum. So my second in charge, his name, he went by the screen name MacGyver. His real name was Kim Taylor out of Denver. He comes to me one day and he's like, hey man, I found a forum techie. And I'm like, yeah? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, who is it? And he's like, oh, he goes by the screen name of Kumba Johnny. I'm like, is he any good? And he's like, oh, he's great. I'm like, okay, bring him in. So Kumba Johnny, Albert Gonzalez, starts handling all the tech side of the forum. Is this starts, before or after his arrest? At the this age? is before. This is about a year and a half before his arrest. So he starts handling the tech side of the forum. He decides he wants to go into selling credit cards. So he starts a screen name by the name of Scarface, Scarface Credit Cards. He called his operation Get Rich or Die Trying, which he borrowed from a rap singer named 50 Cent. Honestly, dude, I couldn't stand him. I could not stand him. His Kumba Johnny persona was fine. The Scarface persona, I hated the guy with a passion. So I kept a distance from him. But what happens is Kumba Johnny's running the tech side of the forum. We had this thing called the CVV1 breach or hack. And what it was, we were doing all this phishing stuff. We were phishing. I mean, back then when you fished data, you could ask 20 questions and they would answer every single question. Mother's maiden, account numbers, passwords, logins, everything, driver's license, all that. We were getting card numbers and pins. The problem was is at that point, you could only use the card numbers for online shopping. 
in order for that to encode on the back of a card, you had to have complete track two data, which was the card number and equal sign, then a 16-digit algorithm out beside of that. So what time period are we talking about? This would have been 2001. All right, so how, did you, how did you fish in the early 2000s? That was some bullshit right there. So we, the weird thing now is it's starting to take place that same way again. I was talking to a former FBI agent, and he's telling me this stuff is still going on. So we would rely on, we would make like domains and hijack existing domains, but in order to get the information, we would use these form software type things like SurveyMonkey and things like that. You had some of these apps that existed back then too. We would just have the people update their information. It would input it into this form software, and then we would download it into a batch file from there. Not very complicated, not very sophisticated. But we got better as time went along. So what are those people being fished? What did they think they were doing by entering the information? They thought they were going to eBay, to PayPal, to whatever bank we sent the page from. So the page would look like Washington Mutual or Wells Fargo or something like that. And so how did that then, whole phishing come about? Is that something you all created or... Fishing was around before that, but we kind of refined it. Talking more than the Nigerian prince fishing, right? Much more than that. So uh, the idea of a fake bank page was around. I mean, we had seen that to a degree, but it was not really popular at that point. What Shadow Crew did was is it made it popular. All of a sudden, you're sending out you know, 2 million emails a day. You're getting 20,000 responses on a daily basis of complete identity profiles. And that is valuable. That's horribly valuable. So we started doing that. We were getting the pins and the cards, and only through testing, because that's one of the things that the more experienced criminals got to where they were doing. And by this point, I'm an experienced criminal. I know what I'm doing at this point. So started testing, and I can't take credit for that. The Ukrainians pulled that bullshit. Came out of the Ukraine that, hey, Washington Mutual hasn't implemented the hash, meaning that you could take the card number, an equal sign, any 16-digit number, it would encode on the back of a white plastic card. You could take it to an ATM machine where you had the PIN number, withdraw the money. So everybody started doing that. And the profit on that, beforehand, we were doing what was called CNP fraud, card not present, just online orders. We were profiting thirty dollars to $40,000 a month. Once the CVV-1 hits, we're profiting thirty dollars to $40,000 per day per user for the guys that were engaged in that. So when they went to the ATMs, they'd go there like, 11.55, take out the 200 cap, and there then you go. wait till midnight and take out another 200, Well, right? that's the thing. Back then, it depended on not only the ATM machine, but the card itself on how much money you were able to withdraw. So some of these cards, you can withdraw a grand. Then you wait 10 minutes, withdraw another grand after that midnight thing hits. The ATM would limit it, or the card would limit the amount of money that we withdrawn. And of course, that gets fixed over time once this stolen money starts coming right. out. But back in the day, the institution was the one that set the limits. The institution. And you know now there are card providers right. who let the customer limits. do that, right? <laughs> right, right. Because... Uh, right, exactly. You know, <laughs> I usually take out $20 at a time. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll do like 300 Back then, you know, you'd uh, some cards would allow 1500 Some cards would allow three to 500 It would depend on the bin. So you were looking for specific bins at that point in time. So we were doing... First, we did Washington Mutual. I think those withdrawals were $1,000 at that point, and you'd, you'd go to an ATM machine with 20 cards. So you'd withdraw $20,000, stuff it into a backpack, wait 10 minutes or whatever, do it again. Depending on the amount of cards that you had, you'd have to do it through the day as well, and that becomes a problem for us. Before that, we had no real indication 
that law enforcement was looking at us. But once that CVV1 hits, especially once we branch out from Washington Mutual and start hitting every bank, because none of the banks had implemented that hash, at that point we started seeing IPs coming in from government agencies. And not only that, but we started to see on local and state law enforcement websites, they would specifically mention Carter Planet and Shadow Crew as these sites that people needed to watch out for. So we, we started getting worried. So what happens is we had this guy, his name was Enhance, and you probably remember this, but Paris Hilton had her T-Mobile phone list published. That was this guy. Now, I, I wish I could say it was a hack. It was not a hack. He worked for T-Mobile, so he got it like that. But what he also got at that point, he was in Los Angeles, he intercepted text messages of the Secret Service investigating Shadow Crew. So I'm at the head of the game at that point. I get scared to death, man. Probably unrealistic, but I was sitting there thinking, Rico is coming. That was the only, that was the only word in my mind was Rico this, Rico that. By this point, I've started this, this new scam, this tax return identity theft. So I'm the guy who started that bullshit. And I was stealing $160,000 a week roughly 10 months out of the year. So how did you know that would work? What happened was, is the first identity database I had access to was the Indiana State Sex Offenders Registry. And what I used that for was to open up bank accounts. Found it, and I was like, it came with the driver's license, the mother's maiden, the social security number, all that stuff was on that database at that point in time. And I'm like, hey, there's sex offenders. No one's gonna care if I victimize them. So started mining out that database, opening up bank accounts and selling the bank accounts online. Indiana, they get the point after about six months and they shut, they start removing the, the PII that's on that database. So the next database we had was the uh, Texas driver's license database. We used that to make driver's licenses. Finally, I find the California state death index. So I'm like, okay, this is interesting start doing a lot of research, I find out that the federal government, they only know you're dead if the family has filed for a death benefit, all right? And that's prior to 1997. So after 97, the hospital or the funeral home would file that social security death benefit. And at that point, the federal government would know that that number was, belonged to a deceased person. If the death benefit had never been filed, the federal government didn't know the person was dead, all right? So my first idea was, I was like, hey, I wonder if I can use a dead person, if the federal government doesn't know they're dead, if I can claim social security benefits and get a recurring paycheck like that. So I started trying to do that scam, and the response to that was, we need you to come in for an interview because this number's been dormant for 20 years. So I was like, no, I'm not going in for an interview because I was like 33 at that point. So the next idea I had was, I wonder if someone could file tax returns on these people and they would go through. That worked like a charm. The only online bank at that point was NetBank out of Alpharetta, Georgia. I had like 10 different bank accounts. So I started filing tax returns to deposit those bank accounts and they went through. I'm like, that's pretty damn good. They were like $3,500 a pop for the returns. Found out pretty quickly I could not set up enough bank accounts to do enough returns. So I'm like, got to do something. So I start looking for other avenues. And there, at that point in time, there were a couple of places that would accept direct deposit and then funnel the money out to you, legitimate places. One of them was called Cifro Cash. I put them out of business. 
with so much stuff that was going through, they actually shut down everything at that point. At about the same time, I find access to what they called back then, they, I think they still call it that, but it's payroll cards, prepaid debit cards. Back then, you could order 200 of these things without an ID. So I'd order 200 a week, file 200 returns, 160 of them roughly, 80% would fund and cash out on a weekly basis. So this is all before you got arrested for oh, yeah. that type crimes. Oh yeah. Got in trouble with the Secret Service. Absolutely, all before and, that. And I assume none of this was in your pre-sentence investigation report because if it had been, <laughs> you'd still be in jail. Well, what was now? Now that's what's interesting on that is I'll take you through the the arrest. But the way Shadow Crew was shut down, and we'll we'll talk about my arrest after that. I step out of Shadow Crew because you got because I was worried. making a shitload of money on the tax fraud. Right. And at the same time, I'm worried about law enforcement coming in and I'm the head of that group. So I'm like, got to leave, got to go. So I retire April 15th, 2004. Right, but you know that they got five years to catch you and prosecute I knew you, that. right? I knew that. But I, and I was scared. I'm like, okay, maybe they don't know who I am. Bullshit. So <laughs> this would have been May, June of, I'm not sure when Albert was actually arrested, but Albert was doing the CVV1 cash out in New Jersey broad daylight, he had a stack of white plastic cards that were encoded, standing at an ATM machine for 40 minutes, feeding one card in, pulling the cash out, stuffing it in a backpack. Two New Jersey cops walk up to the kid. He's wearing a wig, a disguise, everything else. What the hell are you doing? Albert falls apart at that point, flips, goes to work for the Secret Service. No one knew, now I had stepped out of that before Albert gets back in the game. No one knew Albert had been arrested. Albert comes back in. I've retired by this point. My second in charge, Kim Taylor's there. David Appleyard, another admin, was there. He went by the screen name of Black Ops. A couple other guys are there as well. Albert comes in and he says, hey, we're worried about law enforcement. What we need everyone to do, I've set up a VPN. All the traffic, so everyone remains safe, needs to go through the VPN. Which is the Secret Service. Which was owned by the Secret Service. <laughs> <laughs> So, of course, Secret Service starts capturing all the information. Shadow Crew made the front cover of Forbes, August of 2004. Headline, Who's Stealing Your Identity? Talking about all this, all this crap. October 26, 2004, United States Secret Service and worldwide law enforcement, they arrested 33 people, six countries, and six hours. And publicly, I was the only guy that was mentioned of getting away. There was a couple others that ran to South America. Tron in the Ukraine, he got away as well. But, oh, so what, did your name pop up in indictments or? No indictments, just this Gollum Fund was the guy. Oh, so your screen name popped screen up. Screen name popped up. And you up. thought you were safe. Yeah. What happens is, is I was married for nine years and lied to my wife the entire nine. Took her three years to find out that I was a criminal. The next six years was I'm going to stop, I will stop, I, I have stopped, blah, blah, blah. Till she finds out I'm not about to. She cheated on me. I think she knew the only way she could get away from me that I would end the relationship was if adultery popped up. So she cheated on me, and by God, that ended the marriage. I go through depression, get suicidal, all that good stuff. Call a psychologist, start seeing a psychologist. And, uh, Did you pay him with a stolen credit card? Paid him with stolen cash. You're Did damn you right. really? Paid him with stolen cash. I think she did some good, Thomas, but I was not about to stop breaking the law. Was well, I mean, so look, you're obviously making a lot of money, so yeah. how are you spending it? I wasn't. 
that's the key, right? You can't you can't live a lavish lifestyle. So I had I had a house paid for in Charleston, South Carolina. Not it was a ranch style home, not not a big plantation home or anything else like that. The only new vehicle I had purchased was a new Mini Cooper. I had a jet ski, a boat, stuff like that. The money, that 160k a week, was being laundered offshore. On the tax fraud, I would file tax returns from Sunday through Wednesday. Got to where I'd file a tax return every six minutes. Thursday, I'd take a road trip. I'd map out a, a route of ATMs. Friday and Saturday, cash out in a backpack like the one I've got here. $150,000 in 20s would fit in that. I had a spare bedroom. I'd bring $150,000 home in the backpack, chuck it in the spare bedroom. One day you wake up and you're like, I got to do something with those backpacks. So I had cash-based businesses, had car detailing, I had a film production company, a stage company, and multiple bank accounts in the United States, Canada, Mexico, finally throughout Europe, and it ended up in Bank Latico in Latvia, Estonia. That's where most of the money ended up there. But what happens with me is I, my wife leaves me, start seeing a psychologist, paying psychologists with illegal money, of course. I get lonely one night, and I get horny, man. This is about four months after that, and I was 34. I had never been to a strip club, and I'm like, time to go. <laughs> so I had, of course, I'm that research guy. I'd gotten online to find out which strip club had the, the best possibility of getting laid. So I go to this one and walk in, and I'm that idiot that fell in love with the first stripper that he saw, literally the first one. Her name was, I won't say her last name, but her first name was Elizabeth. And I go in, I pay $400 for a bottle of Corbell champagne and sit there and talk to her all night. That's the only thing I do, talk to her. So walk back in the next week, ask her out to dinner. She goes to dinner with me. We start dating. I ended up moving her in my house. Found out after I moved her in, I didn't start drinking until I was 34. I've never done hard drugs. And smoked like four or five joints in my entire life. Found out after I moved her in with me that she was addicted to cocaine. Of course, I already knew she was prostituting herself. That drives me up the wall, man. I cut off all contact with all friends that I had at that point in time and tried to get her off coke. So I get this idea. My idea was is I could keep her mind off of coke, so I'll give her whatever she wants. Whatever she wanted turned into an extremely lavish lifestyle. Every night was, you know, five, $800 on dinner. $11,000 shopping sprees on a weekend, you know, bullshit like that. She didn't stop using coke because of that. What happened was she kept dancing for a while. She'd call me over morning some morning. She wouldn't come home. She'd call me over morning, unable to make it home. And I'd have to go pick her up. I did that a few times. Then one morning she calls me at 7.30 in the morning. She's in a parking lot, can't drive. I'm like, I'll be there. So I went and got her, took her to the house, and I'd, I'd written her a letter Letter basically said, hey, I love you, but I can't put up with the drugs. Either you stop them or you don't be here when I get back. I'd driven to Columbia, South Carolina that day, come back that night, and she's quit her job. And as far as I know, she didn't use any more cocaine. She, she took to drinking after that, and I, could, I put up with that. But she couldn't be intimate unless she was completely wasted. So this is just a money spending phase for you, not committing any crime, getting new income? No, I had no crime during that. My focus was completely on her at this point. Shadow Crew gets popped. I go through, spending on her, I go through every bit of stateside cash I've got, I don't know, 150, 160 grand at this point. Go through all of that. Tax season is over by this point. 
can't go into credit card fraud because Secret Service has shut down Shadow Crew. I'm like, got to have money. So what I, what I started to do was uh, something I had trained people never to do, and that was to run checks. I had told people never run paper. So I start running counterfeit cashier's checks. I'm picked up. I didn't have any money. Would not get a job. And she told me later, man, after I'd been arrested and everything, she said, you could have quit any time. You could have got a job selling fucking cars. And she was right. I could have. Now, how long was your work week when you're committing crime, making a lot of money? Oh, Jesus, Thomas. I, when I was committing crime, I was on a computer 12 to 14 hours a day. Oh, really? That's six to seven days a week, except when I was traveling to cash out cards. If you knew how to code, you could have worked for Google. Yeah, yeah. If you look at how much I actually made, if you factor in the prison time on a per-hour basis. <laughs> well, don't forget the room and board you got for free. Oh, yeah, I got room and board for free. Yeah, so I had went through all stateside money, start running paper, and I'm picked up February 8th because I got to the point I couldn't afford to buy her an engagement ring, and she wanted a Tiffany engagement ring, of course. So I stole that with a counterfeit cashier's check. And, of course, she wanted the Tiffany wedding band after I asked her to marry me. I thought you were a counterfeiter. You couldn't come up with a cubic no, I couldn't find fake ones. <laughs> so I paid. Uh, that's where I got caught was picking up a set of Tiffany wedding bands. It was that uh, drop address. I'd used the same drop address before. I couldn't travel because I, I knew not to do stuff in the area repeatedly. But I couldn't travel because I was scared to leave her. And by this point, she's off coke, but she doesn't want me out of her sight at all. I don't know if she was scared of going back to it or what. So I had arranged for two Tiffany wedding bands to uh, arrive at this drop address in Charleston, South Carolina. I go there, and I'm waiting for the drop. Don't even notice the cops in the parking lot. UPS truck pulls up. I get out of the car, walk up to the UPS truck. I'm like, you got a package for me on there? They're like, yeah, you got a driver's license? Get the driver's license out, show it to them, hand them a fake cashier's check. I think that was $19,000. As soon as I hand it to them, turn around. There's the FBI. And the Charleston Police Department, guns drawn. Turns out there's about 30 of them in the parking lot. <laughs> Just for you? Just for me. And Just what me. small town was that? Charleston, South Carolina, right? <laughs> I told you, you got to yeah. do it in New you York do it someplace City. someplace else. That was the rise and fall of Shadow Crew. That's how I got into cybercrime. I mean, I, I was, I was kind of trained to be a criminal, man. You know, I spent a, a, a damn lifetime breaking the law. But that's how I got caught. And then Secret Service ends up hiring. That's a story for another day, but they end up taking over the investigation. The Secret Service takes over the investigation within an hour, hour and a half. Did you have money for a lawyer or did you go with a federal defender? Oh, dude. Ultimately, <laughs> after, and I'll, this, is, this is from another podcast, but I'll tell you so, since you asked, what happens is, is I go on a run after I screw the Secret Service over on the investigations and everything. I go, go on a cross-country crime spree, steal $600,000 in four months, make the United States most wanted list, when I make the most wanted list, I call this attorney. His name is Paul Thurmond, Strom Thurmond's son. <laughs> and uh, he was like, uh, he one, knew me. The one who eventually became the U.S. attorney? Yeah. So he was like, what's going on, Brett? And I'm like, look, man. I was like, don't think they're going to catch me. But if they do, I need a lawyer. And he was like, $11,000. And I'm like, you'll have it in the morning. <laughs> so, so I hired him. And then uh, I, I was in Las Vegas when I made the United States Most Wanted list. I go from Las Vegas to Disney World, and I lasted about six weeks at Disney World. I rent a timeshare for nine months, pay cash with it. Secret Service, they come and get me. 
to answer your question about the lawyer, I had Paul Thurmond. I had to drop him because I paid for him with illegal funds. So at that point, they give me a public defender. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Public defenders do a great job. I've worked with them for 30-something years, and they, they work really hard. For you know, honestly, his name was Jimmy P. Rogers. He looked exactly like Billy D. Williams, exactly a spitting image of Billy D. Williams. I was hard-headed, man. I mean, it was not, to me, no one was going to do a good job. Well, I mean, what do you expect the lawyer to do when you're guilty of sin, right? Nothing. You're not going to have to do anything. And, like, you can pay whoever you want to. And, and that, you know, back in the day with the, with the drug cartel people, you know, they thought when they were paying a drug lawyer a million dollars that 500000 was going to the judge and going to walk out the door. Right, right. And when that didn't happen, some of them <laughs> end up killing the lawyers. Yeah, like, somebody well, got upset. Not, but, yeah, I mean, Jimmy Rogers, he was a good lawyer. He was. He was just with me, and I, I think that was the whole thing, is I was not mentally anywhere near ready to face acceptance or responsibility. Nothing like that. I wrote a 17-page letter to the damn judge that's in my public record now that blames the Secret Service for every bit of crime oh, I've not committed. I've, yeah, I've <laughs> seen those letters from everybody. Like, I'm being railroaded. Oh, and, yeah. Oh, yeah. I blame them for everything I possibly could. So I even hear that like, when I'm debriefing people and they're Same trying thing. to cooperate. Yeah. And I go, look, I'm not buying that bullshit. <laughs> I'm not buying that If you shit, want to man. tell it to a jury, let's go to trial. <laughs> so, Tall people yeah, I was, picked uh, from the community can be your judge on you know, the facts. The, the Secret Service, when I worked for them, honestly, they were good guys. They were. They were good guys. I well, just, I, let uh, me tell you something. Law enforcement people are a team. Yeah, and no matter where you are or what you do, I mean, look, there there are a few bad apples everywhere, sure. particularly in the uh, street level. We see coming out with Facebook posts, but right. you know, the overwhelming majority who don't get any mention are good people they are. doing they are. great work for less money than they can make. You're absolutely right. in the real world, but the press always focuses on the bad apples. Absolutely, absolutely, and they were they were good guys. They tried to give me a chance, Thomas. So and it's funny that you it. mentioned that Paul Thurman, because uh, you know later he became, <laughs> yep. he became the, uh, and that was under, uh, yep. who was that? I think it was George Bush or something. And, and I just, <laughs> I always remember it was like some reporter asked Strom Thurman, he goes, because he was like 28 when he became the U.S. attorney. And he might have had a year or two under his belt as an right. assistant DA. And so somebody asked me, like, aren't you against nepotism? <laughs> and, and the U.S. attorneys are appointed by the president. Right. And so Strom Thurmond's response was like, he ain't George Bush's son. <laughs> the, the only advice Paul Thurmond ever gave me, he was like, over the phone, he was like, don't get caught. <laughs> I'm like, I'm trying not to, man. Don't get caught. If you do, we've not had this conversation. Okay, fine. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Anglerfish. I appreciate it. If you like it, please subscribe and drop me a line saying hello. Hello is always good. You can reach me direct at brettjohnson at anglerfish.com. That's brett, B-R-E-T-T, Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N, at anglerfish, A-N-G-L-E-R-P-H-I-S-H.com. Please tell your friends about us, rate and review the Anglerfish podcast wherever you can. 
In the next few weeks, we'll be launching Season 2 of Anglerfish, which will examine the darkest corners of our online lives and what you need to do to remain safe. Please email me questions, comments, concerns, personal stories, and any topics you might like to hear discussed. That's brettjohnson at anglerfish.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Brett Johnson. Stay safe, stay secure, and stay vigilant.